Once the world was perfect. Once the world was perfect and we were happy in that world, then we took it for granted. Discontent began a small rumble in the earthly mind. The doubt pushed through with its spiked head, and once doubt ruptured the web, all manner of demon thoughts jumped through. We destroyed the world we have been given for inspiration, for life. Each stone of jealousy, each stone of fear, greed, envy, and hatred put out the light. No one was without a stone in his or her hand. There we were, right back where we had started. We were bumping into each other in the dark. And now we had no place to live since we didn't know how to live with each other. Then, one of the stumbling ones took pity on another and shared a blanket. A spark of kindness made a light. The light made an opening in the darkness. Everyone worked together to make a ladder. A wind clan person climbed out first into the next world. And then the other clans, the children of those clans, their children and their children, all the way through time to now, into this morning light to you. Desire, Paris, May 2005. Let's just say I seem to be enjoying these three chicken drumsticks far more than the young man doing sit-ups just across the lawn beside his girlfriend here at the Jardin des Ruy is enjoying himself. After all, he's huffing and puffing and I'm sitting here devouring my chicken, basking in the spring sun. But now it's rolling over it's push-ups he's doing, push-ups right on top of his girlfriend, and the push-ups are getting slower and slower, just as my chicken is disappearing. And before long, the push-ups stop altogether. He's merely lying there on top of her, and he seems, even from a distance, much happier than when he was doing push-ups. And then he suddenly sits up, looks up at the heavens and stares with an expression of pure longing over at me. Oh, he seems to be saying, I sure wish I had some chicken. (laughs) Of the seven deadly sins, envy is the one that gives the least pleasure. There's the deliciousness of gluttony, the relaxation of sloth, the righteousness of anger, the self-esteem boost of pride, the daydreaming of greed, the joys of lust. But there's very little pleasure in envy. It's a belittling of ourselves. It's a coming up short in comparison. It creates sorrow out of joy, the wise ones tell us. 
And yet, envy is as close to a universal experience as there is. There is no human language without a word for it. We've all felt that discontented murmur when we see someone else's beautiful house or see that powerful sun or the rain cloud that blocks our way or when we've heard someone's wonderful news. Maybe you've been the one envying another person's girlfriend or chicken. Maybe you've wanted to be the prince or the cloud or the sun. And maybe your envy takes a different form. And maybe you are one of the lucky and wise ones who who has overcome it. I called envy a sin. And we don't use that word much around here. And to me, sin is a shorthand to talk about all of the behaviors that keep us from living out our most deeply held values. A word for all of the patterns and systems of oppression that keep the beloved community from being realized. But I know there's a lot of definitions, and a lot of us have been wounded by that word somewhere along the way, told, us, told that we were sinning in some way. So if that word stands between you and your ability to sink into this topic, I offer these words from American writer Joseph Epstein, who wrote a wonderful little book on envy. He writes, if the very notion of sin, original or unoriginal, as damning, simply makes no sense to you, I would invite you instead to consider envy less as a sin than as very poor mental hygiene. It blocks out clarity, both about oneself and the people one envies, and it ends by giving a poor opinion of oneself. No one can see clearly anything he or she envies. Envy clouds thought, clobbers generosity, precludes any hope of serenity, and ends in shriveling the heart. Reasons enough to fight free of it with all one's mental strength, he concludes. So envy, whether we think of it as sin or poor mental hygiene, clouds thought, clobbers generosity, precludes any hope of serenity, and ends in shriveling our hearts. The central, simple question of envy, the question that makes all of that possible, is why not me? We see someone's wealth, achievement, talent, good fortune, chicken, and think, why not me? Why didn't I get that? And most of the time, most of us have that passing thought and continue on, but sometimes the question lingers. It festers and grows from an idle wondering to a belittling of ourselves, our talents, our abilities. And the structure of this American system we live in encourages envy and in turn is fueled by the envy it creates. Envy is the strongest between near equals. When we think someone is about the same as us, it's easier to envy them. Helmut Schoch is an Austrian-German sociologist who wrote overwhelming and astounding inequality, especially when it has the elements of the unattainable, arouses far less envy than minimal inequality, which inevitably causes the envious to think I might have been in his place. And while there is astounding and overwhelming inequality in our country, those are not the stories we grow up with. 
the stories that get embedded deep inside us. Our culture is full of stories that we are more equal than we are. We are told that we live in a culture where the best people rise to the top because of their hard work, regardless of the circumstances they were born into. And perhaps our parents or teachers or other trustworthy adults told us that if we worked hard, we would be successful. And we know it isn't that simple. And many of us know intellectually that the up by the, your bootstraps myth is just that. But we still look at one another and compare. And this is compounded by the reality that many of our markers of class are not as rigid as they once were. Who even are our peers? Who do we compare ourselves to for reassurance that we're on the right track, for inspiration to do better, or for that quick jolt of pleasure that comes from thinking that we're doing better than someone else? And layer on top of that, the reality that our economy thrives on envy. The consumer consumption that our economy is dependent on is rooted in envy in a lot of ways, and getting us to feel envy and then act on that envy. Advertising of many kinds is rooted in that envy. We see the people in advertisements with their beautiful, worry-free lives, beautiful and worry-free because they are not real, and we get that murmur of envy. Henry fairly describes that moment like this. No sooner is it said than one feels the sound of murmuring in one's own day as envy does its work and lap, lap, laps against the few shore defenses we have built around us, eroding them slowly but certainly, whispering its doubts and suspicion and gossip until we believe and begin to look forward to them. We might act on our envy, buying that advertised thing, gossiping about someone who's getting more than they deserve, belittling ourselves for not measuring up. Or like the stonecutter in our story today, get ourselves turned into a prince or a cloud. But if we struggle with envy, if that's part of our lived experience, we know that, those exper- that getting what we've envied only quiets the murmuring for a minute. The murmuring is relentless. And the murmur of envy hurts us all. The envious impulse often makes things worse for everyone. They do studies about this. Economists have found that people would rather be in a situation of earning $85,000 a year with their neighbors earning $75,000 than earning $100,000 a year if their neighbors earn $125,000. Envy wants us to view it all as a competition and we all end up losing in that competition. So what do we do to manage the envy, this impulse that seems to live in most of us? There are a number of ways to mute those murmurs. One way is to explore if envy is a messenger. Perhaps there is someone in particular you feel most envious of, that person who, from your perspective, just seems to have it all together. Ask yourself what it is that you're envying. Does his job seem fulfilling? And all the pictures they post on Facebook, is their house really clean? That's mine. (laughs) 
Do they get to travel? And, and so maybe it's time to ponder that career transition or you know, really make peace with yourself that cleaning is not the thing you want to spend your time doing uh, or explore how you might otherwise be able to make that change. One of the things that led me into ministry was sitting in a church and feeling jealous and envious of the preacher. Another way to manage envy, I learned from a a Lutheran pastor who was a mentor of mine. And the advice was for a different context, but it applies to envy. I was doing a hospital chaplain residency, and I was working with someone from a very strict religious tradition. And he had very, I would call rigid, understandings of how men and women could interact. And one of them was he didn't think it was appropriate for us to be alone in an office together, which was a problem because we had a shared office with the four desks in a large room. And it hurt when he would get up and leave when I would walk in if we were the only two there. And this mentor said, what if you just don't take it personally? Which maybe some of you knew that, but I didn't. And it was a revelation. So as I went forward, he would get up and leave, and I'd be like, oh, that's just... Zach being Zach, and that's okay. And I can do my own thing. And we can do that. When someone else has success or is acting in ways we don't understand, it doesn't have to be about us. They are just on their journey, doing their thing. And so we don't have to take it personally. We can remember that other people's successes really have very little to do with us most of the time. Another skill at painting or drawing It's not a personal attack. Neither is their beach house or their chicken or their girlfriend or that marriage that just seems so perfect from the outside. We don't need to jump to those internal comparisons when someone else is doing well. It's only a competition if we choose to make it so. Envy wants us to see the world as a zero-sum game that there's a set amount of everything and not enough to go around, that we're all competing for what is scarce and precious. And that is a lie. That is the lie at the heart of envy. The truth is that there is enough. Of everything that matters most, there is enough. There's enough for everyone to have enough. There's enough love for all to be loved, There's enough wisdom for everyone to be wise. There's enough joy for us all to be joyous. There's enough justice for everyone to be treated justly. And there's enough beauty for everyone to fill their eyes and ears and bodies with it. And while it might not be true in all parts of our world right now, here among us, in Kalamazoo, in Michigan, in the United States, there's also enough of everything that we need for our survival. There's enough food, there's enough shelter, there are enough clothes, and collectively, we don't distribute them fairly. But that doesn't mean there isn't enough. Some have full closets and pantries, and others have no closets or pantries. But there is fundamentally enough. Envy and competition and capitalism tell us that these shouldn't be freely given to everyone who needs it. But if we collectively made another decision, there would be enough for everyone to have enough. 
there is enough for everyone to have enough is the truth that envy, that poor mental hygiene, that sin keeps us from knowing. We can get too focused on the competition and forget that we have the power to rewrite the rules entirely. And that work can start in our own hearts. Forest Church was the senior minister at All Souls Unitarian Church in New York City. And he was a brilliant writer and thinker and a deeply flawed man. He was a minister who engaged in sexual misconduct in his congregation, and he hurt his church and people within it. And the authorities within our denomination did not hold him accountable for those actions, in part because he was such a brilliant writer and thinker. And this is a long and complicated story, and I needed to name it to go on to quote him with integrity. So he has this brilliant phrase, and it speaks to us of overcoming envy, to remembering it's not a competition, to cultivating the gratitude necessary to move away from scarcity and towards sufficiency. He writes, want what you have, be who you are, do what you can. Want what you have. This means noticing, really noticing all that is good. In a consumer culture that thrives on getting us to want the next thing, this is a radical act to work towards contentment. This is a way to cultivate gratitude for all tangible and intangible that is already in our lives. Want what you have, know there is enough, and be who you are. So much of envy is rooted in wanting to be someone that you're not, with a different set of skills and talents, abilities and aptitudes. Joseph Epstein writes that as he aged, his envies shift, shifted. He no longer envied people their possessions, but their abilities. He writes, I envied anyone who could do a backward somersault in midair from a standing position. I envied people who had fought in a war, had their bravery tested, and came through intact. I envied people who spoke a foreign language easily. I envied performing artists of various kinds who can enthrall an audience to the point where the audience doesn't want the performance to ever end. I envied people who could travel abroad with a single piece of luggage. (laughs) I envied people who have exceedingly good posture. And above all, I envied those people, favorites of the gods, who genuinely understand that life is a fragile bargain, rescindable at any time, and live their lives day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, accordingly. So to be who you are means to recognize strengths and weaknesses, flaws and talents as vital to who you are. It means to strive to be authentically you, as honest with the world as you can muster. And it means to remember that you are worthy, a precious jewel, as Dirk described us, just as you are. And do what you can. We are all called to do what we can to make our values real in the world. 
doing what you can might mean doing that hard internal work to overcome envy or other habits of poor mental hygiene. Doing what you can might mean remembering you can opt out of the competition or decide not to take others' success or good fortune personally. Doing what you can might mean marching in the streets or calling your representatives or showing up at county commissioners' meetings. Doing what you can might mean knowing that there is enough for everyone to have enough and acting to make it so. So let us want what we have, be who we are, and do what we can. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.